0: Well hey everyone, welcome to episode 204 of F-STOP Collaborate and Listen! This week I was joined by the photographer who famously quit all of his social media accounts in 2018. Welcome Dave Morrow to the show! Dave is a landscape photographer residing on the west side of the Cascade Range near Seattle, Washington. Dave and I share a passion for experiencing nature while on long backpacking trips and so we spend a lot of time discussing that shared passion. We also focused a great deal on his strategies for email marketing and platform creation to engage with his customers and community, having removed himself from social media altogether. Over on Patreon this week, Dave and I discussed the importance of cross-disciplinary skill building as a way to round yourself out to become a better person, photographer, and business person. Before we get started, I wanted to remind listeners that you can engage with other like-minded photographers in conversation about podcast episodes or other photography-related topics over on Nature Photographers Network. Listeners can get a 60-day free trial by visiting the link in the show notes. It is a wonderful place to learn and grow as a photographer. Okay, let's get to the show. Awesome. Dave Morrow, thank you so much for joining me on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I've been appreciating your photography and kind of your approaches to thinking about the craft of photography for a long time now, and especially the business side. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
1: Nice. Yeah. I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast. A lot of times when I do long drives for big expeditions from my house up in the Northwest, eight or 10 hours, I've listened to like five or six year episodes straight. So Nice. Really appreciate, really appreciate what you're doing, man. It's a, it's really cool.
0: Awesome, man. Yeah, I know I think it's uh I think that's how a lot of people consume podcasts. I mean, that's how I like to listen is, you know, I kind of save them up and listen to them on a long trip or something like that. Unless it's someone I'm like super curious about. Yeah. Then then I'll listen right away, but
1: but yeah, totally. Uh, another time I listen to them is if like I'm stuck in a tent during a storm. You've <laughs> you've pulled me through some of those, too. It's nice <laughs> to have like 20 hours of podcast on there.
0: Right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've had a few of those moments backpacking myself. Well, so you mentioned you're, you're from the North, North Washington is where you live. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and uh, how you got into this crazy world of photography.
1: Sure. No problem. Yeah. I live up in Northern Washington state out by the Cascade range, which is the range of mountains that runs from like Southern British Columbia down to Northern California, and I just find it to be like a good center spot that I can launch a bunch of trips off from. I've been doing landscape photography for, I don't know, about 12-ish years now. And the last seven years-ish, I've been doing it full time. Um, I moved out here first to work for Boeing doing aerospace engineering. And I was from the East Coast. So I wasn't really aware of the size of the wilderness and mountains out here. So once I got out here, I started backpacking. And then eventually I was like, man, that would be fun to start taking some photos of this stuff too. So it kind of just morphed slowly. And as I learned both, I just started writing about them and I made a website and this was like, I don't know, 10 years ago. So this was all new stuff at that point. I mean, websites were around, but it wasn't like it is now where they're really nice. It's kind of junky and clanky back then. Um, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, uh, People just started reading the articles and liking them. So I was like, all right, well, there's an interest here. So I just kept pushing down that path without a real game plan besides trying to learn. And it worked out to the point that I could make it into a full-time business eventually.
0: Yeah, was there a uh, decisive moment that occurred that kind of allowed you to do that?
1: Yeah, the decisive moment was me just forcing myself to jump off a cliff and quit working (laughs) an aerospace engineering job. I mean, aerospace engineering is a pretty lucrative job and photography can be lucrative, but it was still a huge risk. Cause like, I'm sure as you know, you never know what your business is going to do the next year. And you're always worried about, is it going to do okay next year? Who knows? Um, whereas like a nine to five, most likely if you do a good job, you'll still be around. So it was just like a, a forced jump off a cliff and see what happens.
0: Nice. How did you, uh, <laughs> did you have a nice little safety net built up or did you
1: just say, heck with it, I'm going for it? No, I definitely had savings and I definitely <laughs> had a lot of preparation leading up to it to make sure that, uh, I, that I could say without a reasonable doubt, I would probably do pretty well. Um, I mean, I just tried to look at it like if I fail in the photography business, I can always go back to working my old job. So it's not like I was actually jumping off a cliff. I was just making a big life change if that makes sense.
0: It does. It does. Uh, I feel like that's a fairly common story with people that have actually figured out a way to make it work. Um, and I'm definitely looking forward to talking to you about kind of what are the different strategies you've used to make it work. But uh, I'm just going to kick us off with the burning question that I've had for quite a long time in regards to you. And that uh, that is, why did you delete
1: all of your social media accounts in 2018? Well, that's a great question. Um, I still sometimes wonder that. No, I'm just kidding. Um I I just I found the uh the benefits I found the downsides not to outweigh the benefits. And this is just for myself personally. I mean, for some people it might be great. Just the way my brain works, it wasn't something that was really providing a lot of upside in my life and it kind of stressed me out as well. I always just felt like whenever I would interact on social media, there would be like all this background chatter. And noise running in my brain and I couldn't get creative work done during the day. So I just started to devote all my time to platforms and places that I actually had control over, meaning like an algorithm didn't control my reach long term, such as a website and an email list. Um, So that kind of just triggered me to get off of it. And then I still use YouTube, which some people consider social media. Um, I consider it more of like a video repository or a platform like if you go on Google and search something, say you search for like how to, just make up a random example. How to how to set your f-stop settings. You'll get YouTube videos, but you won't get social media posts. So, YouTube's like a problem-solving tool whereas mm-hmm. social media can be, but it's not really indexed to the point where you can find it well like a knowledge repository is. Right. Did for like um for podcasts, like how does that work with your podcast? Is there a way that people can like find it outside of like a podcasting app or how's that work?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly have had to depend quite a bit on social media I and mean, it's all organic social media. I'm, I'm not doing any like paid advertising or anything like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, the interesting thing about my show is that I always have a, another photographer or men, more than one photographer on the show And I kind of am at the mercy of them helping spread the word of the show. Yeah. And it's kind of been that way from the beginning. So, you know, I depend on other people to help spread the word of the show to their audiences, whether that's through social media or their websites or their email lists. You know, in terms of Google, I do have... I actually purchased a transcription service for the podcast this year. So I have... Most of the episodes have been transcribed and embedded into my website. And the main reason I did that was for search engine optimization in case people were searching for different people or different things they wanted to learn about. But uh, yeah, I think most people find podcasts either through the podcast app itself and how it's been rated or commented on. Mm, um, or gotcha. or, re- or reviews like if it has a lot of ratings and reviews, it gets shown to more people. Or if it's similar, like I think Apple sees, oh, this person likes these three podcasts, so they probably would like this one, so they show it to people like as suggestions. But yeah, in terms of search engine or Google, it's it's usually not the way pod- people find out podcasts. I think it's mostly word of mouth or the app itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. I wonder how uh, it'll be interesting to see how that develops as far as like pe- people getting found out about because it seems like it's still really primitive in the form of how you find podcasts cuz I listen to a lot of them, but the only way I really find them is if somebody maybe recommends it or I hear it on another podcast.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. It's um that's why uh not to give away any secrets, but like that's why it's really important for people that have a podcast to try to be a guest on a lot of other podcasts because that's often how people learn about those other your podcast
1: yeah it's, um, i also like it because it it gives you a better idea of like what a person's all about like listening to something that's an hour or whatever the length is, is it's just nice because you actually get a feel if you have connection with that person's way of thinking or what they're up to or if you're inspired by them or not which is neat
0: yeah totally i'm um, you know my my podcast has always been more about the people in photography than it is about the photography itself <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if that makes sense
1: that's the that's the interesting part to me as well. I guess I like people i like um I like people's ideas or thought processes and how they go about things um that's that's always really interesting to me
0: almost any every episode you're gonna learn something interesting, whether or not it's usable or not is another story but <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: You deleted all your social media. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like, it's not like you were like, oh, I'm going to lose like a thousand Instagram followers. Like, you had amassed a huge following. Am I right?
1: Yeah. I probably had across uh, all platforms, maybe a million followers, um, some, something like that. But it's like, here's how I thought about it. If I'm looking at the long term ability for me to create things that I'm interested in and get them out to people. That's my overall goal is to be able to teach people what I'm doing and what I've made mistakes on and what I've optimized and found to work. And if I want to do that over the long term, I was really worried about my ability to reach people if for some reason in the future, Facebook or any other algorithm for some reason didn't find interest in what I was talking about anymore or they couldn't monetize it in some way. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to take that out of my business model completely. And I know I lost a lot of reach from that at first, but I wanted to say, hey, let's build everything on platforms that you own and servers that you own and pay for. And if you can build a business like that, then it will be, I guess you could say it would be anti-fragile, meaning it will at first take some hits as far as less traffic. But over time, as I find out what works, it'll build itself stronger and stronger and then I can actually know what those strengths are instead of depending on an algorithm to build the audience that way. Um, and then kind of how I looked at that was, well, if it fails and I have to use social media, to build a business, then at least I'll know that I can't do it on my own, on my own platforms. And that hasn't happened yet. It's actually been the reverse where I've had way more time to create and I can build an audience on my email list. And now I have an online school that's a premium platform where I own and I built it. And that's worked out really well too because I can have all my courses on there. I can interact with people on there. And it's almost like a social media platform that people pay to sign up for, but it's really high quality as far as like the learning material. They can interact with me. They can ask questions, but everything on there as far as what I know about the outdoors and landscape photography is also on there. So I kind of replicated the interaction of social media at a smaller scale onto platforms that I own. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of one of the, my favorite podcasts that I like to listen to that has nothing to do with photography is uh Amy Porterfield. Uh, mm, she's nice. she's a marketing person and um she talks a lot about email marketing, which I'm yeah. terrible at, but which is why I listen to her show because I like to try to figure out how to do it better. Uh but she's always talking about how, you know, social media is just rented space and really if you were a smart business person, you really shouldn't be paying advertising to get people to you know like your social media accounts you should be if anything pushing them to to sign up to your email list because you own your email list and yeah you alone own your email risk and to your point like if the algorithm changes or whatever like you just basically lost your entire way of reaching your audience
1: absolutely and the other thing if you want a tip for um email list I just try to use my email list. Like I'm just emailing a friend about something. Like when I make new content, I just send a really short email and it says, Hey, I created this piece of content because I was not doing well at this specific thing. So I designed a step-by-step system that solved the problem. And then I'll just send it out to people. And the cool thing about an email list is that for some reason it builds a lot more rapport with people. So like, I just find the relationship back and forth between email and on a platform that I own to be a bit better. Whereas the scroll feed of social media, it's almost like there's a disconnect between the creator and the people that are interacting with it a lot because they're just like thumbing through like a feed, right? Mm-hmm. Where with email, they see an email from me, it's to them, and then they might reply to it or they might just click on the link. Um, I just find it to be a lot better way to me communicate. Or maybe I'm just old school and I think it's a better way. and. Then somehow my ideas are going to fail in the future, and I'll just fall off the face of the earth. But
0: we'll see. <laughs> what um, you know, one of the things I liked about Amy Porterfield's podcast is she really walks you through kind of the process of you know creating lead magnets, um, mm-hmm. and I can t- we can talk a little bit about what that means. But she also talks about envisioning kind of like what your your perfect customer avatar is, and and then so. In terms of a lead magnet, I'll just kind of quickly define that for people that might not know. It's basically a freebie or some way of getting people to your site so that they sign up for your emails. And I'm curious, what are the methods that you use
1: to get more people onto your email list? Yeah, that's a good question, Matt. So there's a few different methods you can use. I guess before we talk about that, I want to people to know that when if they want to do this on their own, if you're looking to start an email list at least i think it's a good idea not to look like it not to look at it like growing a list to make more money but growing a list to build a community so hmm. if you build a community of people that are on your email list i just see these as maybe not direct friends but people that are also interested in the same things that i am and i just happen to be a little bit further on the path of learning specific things than they are. So I can teach it backwards on that path to them so they can skip all the mistakes that I've made. So if you design your whole email list like that and your website like that, then it can help people to learn a lot. And some people might in turn buy premium products from you if you offer something. Some might not, but you're still helping them out. And that's the goal overall as far as how I have my stuff set up. But in terms of lead magnets, um, I like to make every page. Of my website to solve a specific problem that i have and to show the solution to that problem so for example i might have a page about how to use color theory for landscape photography so i'll write a really long blog post on this being like 2500 words plus sometimes in the five six thousand word range and then the lead magnet on that page i'll just take that page i'll turn it into a nicely formatted pdf And I'll make the lead magnet a PDF of that page because then people can actually download it to their phone and they can take it out shooting with them. But you don't have to design all this extra material that surrounds it as a lead magnet. You just take what you already created, package it into a PDF. And then a lot of people want that so they can read it later on their phone or whatever else.
0: And how how are you driving
1: people to find those lead magnets? I just put them on the page that on every one of the pages. I just put a few lead magnets on the page. So like at the top of my page, I'll have an intro to what the page is all about. Mm-hmm. And then there'll be a box that said, if you want a free PDF of this page, to take out shooting with you, you can enter your email and get the PDF. And then Got they it. Ju- it just sends them right to the PDF and then they can go from there.
0: And uh, what, um, what are you using in terms of a mail platform? Are you using convert or MailChimp or
1: I use convert I absolutely hate MailChimp. I use them <laughs> for like six years It's like when MailChimp first started, they were like a small startup and they were very clean. They didn't have a bunch of extra stuff on it. And they turned into like, sorry if any of you guys work for Microsoft, but they turn into like this massive legacy platform like Microsoft where there's so much stuff and it's so unorganized. It's like, (laughs) what is this thing? And uh, ConvertKit's in startup phase or they're pretty young. So it's built for... It's built just for creators and people that run blogs and stuff. So it doesn't have any extra fluff you don't need and it's very targeted at the tools that you actually do need.
0: Right. And are you also I mean, you can you can probably tell I've done a lot of homework on this, but I actually haven't implemented any of it yet, but have you uh do you have it set up to where you have basically um how do I say this? Like email automation where once somebody signs up, then you have it set up to send them a series of different emails with different articles or PDFs or things like, like more and more lead
1: magnets. Yeah. I I use automations, but I don't have very complex ones. For example, an automation would be guys, if anybody is like, let's say somebody puts their email in on my website, they will get an email that has a free photography course that I designed. It's just videos. And they'll get that over the first four weeks of being on my email list. And that kind of just introduces them to the baseline foundational knowledge of what they'll need to learn from the rest of my emails. So it kind of just sets them up so we're all on the same level of learning and conversation for when the rest of the emails come out. But I don't have any like crazy funnels, a funnel being like if they click a certain link in an email, they go to another email or something like that. I keep right. it pretty simple.
0: Yeah, I was, I've was. i been thinking about creating a, some email automation for print sales actually in terms of because that's mostly what people are on my website uh sign email signups is which is cool uh and I haven't figured out yet a way to like segment out the people that are there for other things <laughs> like maybe they want to know more about upcoming podcasts or things like that but um I think there's a lot of power in email marketing and automation that a lot of people probably should take advantage of
1: <laughs> e- email list is Unbelievable. Like, if you have an email list that you actually take care of and that you have a good relationship with people, it's unbelievable compared to like a social media platform. I'm not saying that social media is a bad thing, it can be a great tool. But as far as the number of people that will view the stuff you're sending out, if you're always sending out good stuff and if you don't send them tons of emails, then it can be great. Like, people will always open and click. I mean, when I send out an email to my list, it's like 70% of the people open it. And then like the click through, rates like 25 or 30%. Wow. But I, th- I think the goal for this is that if you're going to do it, don't like a lot of times on social media, you're just creating these little chunks of content all the time and pushing them out. So it's not always awesome stuff that you're interacting with. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. The goal I try to keep in mind for email list is only send stuff out that's really good and really helpful. And if I don't have something like that, I don't send it out because that's a good way to get people not to trust the emails you're sending out.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Well, you talked also about building a, a platform in terms of, I'm I'm assuming what you mean by platform is like a website. Tell Tell us a little bit about the platform that you've built and maybe we can talk a little bit about what kind of the pros and cons are of email marketing versus having a platform.
1: Sure. So, a platform is definitely a website in this case. So I've built out a website that's basically not shown on my website, but so I have my, wa- my main website, davemorphotography.com And then I have my Landscape Photography School platform. And a few times a year, I open up enrollment for this platform and it's a subscription service. So you pay every year a fee and you get access to my entire system of learning, meaning you learn everything you need to know in a step-by-step methodical manner about landscape and outdoor photography. And that includes like backpacking stuff, outdoor stuff, camera technique, photo editing, whatever else. And then people can also interact on there. So if they have a question, they can just type it in. And I make videos every month to answer their questions. So there's also a huge repository of answered questions on video. You can almost consider it like a Netflix, but it's just designed around landscape photography. And it's just designed from the stuff that I've learned from spending most of the year out in the field shooting and then editing photos and failing a whole lot, learning what works and what doesn't. (laughs) So I kind of want to, go ahead. Sorry.
0: I was just gonna say, what is the relationship between this platform and your YouTube channel?
1: Um, There's not, I don't post it. There's not like duplicate content. So everything on the platform is built just for that platform. The YouTube stuff I just make, for fun on YouTube, like when I feel like going out on a trip and recording it, I'll just record one of my wilderness trips and then I'll kind of make it into like a, a vlog style thing, teach some stuff on it, and then upload it to YouTube. But the platform, I've designed it so there's like all the fundamental skill sets. So there's courses that teach all the fundamental skill sets. But on top of that, I have series, meaning a series could be on, you could say, photo editing techniques that I add to every month. Or backpacking techniques where I'll add a new video every month. And then there's also trips. So I have them organized by ecosystem and season. So let's say you're going on a trip to the desert in the spring. Well, you can click two buttons that filters out all my trips and it'll show you the trips I've taken to the desert in the spring. And then you can watch my full trip where I go out and capture images. And my goal of this is that you use different techniques depending on the ecosystem and the season that you're in as well as different gear. So it kind of lets people know before their trip to those ecosystems in a specific season, what they need to get ready for all the shooting techniques that I used out in the field, because they're actually following me on the trip. And then I get back from the trip. I edit through the photos, show them like which ones I liked, which ones I didn't. So my goal is to kind of create a video experience for people where they could follow through everything that goes into landscape and outdoor photography from the baseline skills, through the actual trips, through the photo editing, and everything else.
0: Nice. How, I, so I, I admit that uh, I had this lofty goal of creating a YouTube video once a week, and I think I lasted three weeks. I'm curious how do you how do you stay motivated to continue to push out content on on YouTube?
1: That's a tough one to do sometimes. Um, <laughs> but the only way I found to stay motivated is create content around things that I'm currently really interested in. And sometimes that can sound selfish, but I think if you're really interested in something and you want to learn to do it better, if you can show people the process of you learning it and the mistakes you've made, while learning it, and then your outcome during the learning process, that's pretty good information for anyone to have. And if you're always working on stuff that you're interested in learning, then you don't really lose that motivation. At least that's what I've found. And it also comes across... That you're making videos because you actually want to, versus just making videos so you can draw traffic or something like that. I just don't ever want to get to the point where I'm doing stuff just to make money because that's why I left my other job, and I don't want to recreate that scenario in this this new part of my life. Yeah, how long have you been uh, doing it full time again? I forgot. Uh, I've been doing like it's coming up on six and a half years. I think. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. What, like, what's your scenario? Are you, are you doing it full-time now? I know a while back you weren't, but I didn't know if you had switched or not.
0: Nope. I still, you know, I still have a full-time job. You know, I also teach and, you know, have the podcast and a bunch of other irons in the fire that I'm, so I'm like slowly building the foundations to be able to, to do it, uh, pursue it more full-time. A lot of it for me is kind of building that, uh, that safety net up first, Mm -hmm. because then and then i won't have to convince my wife that it's a good idea. It doesn't even it won't matter if it's a good idea or not, <laughs> you yeah, know. <laughs> for sure. Do
1: you do you have a do you have kids? <laughs> yeah, i've got a 13-year-old son. Nice. Um and that makes a lot of difference too cuz i don't have any kids. So it's like as soon as you have kids there's a whole different perspective on what's actually important.
0: Oh, 100%. And and not only that, but uh, i think i recognize too that, you know, to do it seriously and maybe this is a good segue to talk about this, but I feel like to do it seriously and to make a decent living at it, you're probably going to have to spend a fair amount of time away from home or, you know, there's going to be times where you're gone for big stretches of time and you're not able to, you know, be there for your family and things like that. So those are things that kind of weigh heavily on me as well in terms of
1: making it work and not being a deadbeat dad. (laughs) I agree, man. I, I don't know if I could, I know a lot of people do manage both. I know I couldn't so I completely get where you're coming from.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good way of kind of segueing to talk about, you know, different ways of making a living as a full-time professional photographer. Cause I, I think there's kind of, sometimes there's these misconceptions that it's kind of, you have to do, you have to teach workshops and you got to sell prints and, and whatever. So I'm curious kind of what are your thoughts on how to, how to do it?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think there's, Many different ways, like you said, of doing it, and it's all going to depend on the lifestyle that you want to live long. This is at least how I look at it. Other people might take it differently, but the lifestyle that you want to live long term that will give you enough energy to keep doing it year after year. Because if you pick stuff that you want to make money off of and you don't actually like the thing and you don't have the daily energy to do it because it's not any longer interesting to you then it's going to be hard to do it well and give people a good experience. So I just try to design it around things that I'm really passionate about in the first place. And I think prints look cool when you hang them up on a wall. And I love the process of like seeing one of my prints big if it uh, is a good photo. But I don't really like the process of dealing with all the in-betweens of getting people a really good print. But for (laughs) For me, I really like seeing people learn something or like something click in somebody's head where they can change something in their life or they can gain a new skill or they can live a new way that they've wanted to but didn't know how. So that's like a motivating thing for me. And I know I can do that long-term because I'll constantly have new ideas and things that I want to improve upon. And if I can teach that back to people and some of them get something out of it, then it's going to work out. Um, So I think you can make money on the internet off of almost anything you want. If you have like a minimum amount of people that want to buy it, it could be 500 people buying a $200 product and you have a hundred thousand dollars a year, or you could have like a thousand people buying a hundred dollar product. So it's not like you need the scale of the masses to do this. It's just something you can pick that you feel like you can help people with and you can do it for a long period of time because normally businesses don't scale up very quickly. If you're just doing a single business, like, you just running it by yourself, it's just going to take some time. So like at first you might not make any money for five years. So if you don't like the thing, good luck getting through the first five years. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if, if you love the thing and you're like, I would be doing this anyway, then that's something you can put into as far as a long-term game plan. So I'm not a big fan of the print thing. Other people are though. So if like you're out there and you're listening and you're like, oh man, I like printing and I like getting people to hang prints on their wall. Then you could do prints; it'd be cool. Um, but I think knowing yourself and knowing what you're able to give people in the long term is pretty important for starting a business that will do well over decades.
0: Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. Uh, it's really critical to kind of know yourself and and know what you like and what you don't like. I mean, if you take the print thing for example, you have to be a really good business person who is has good customer service skills who has a lot of patience and the testicular fortitude to take it in the chops if something goes wrong you know i mean there's a lot of things that can go wrong in the printing process um from the point of getting the print ordered versus getting it hung on someone's wall especially if we're talking high end stuff and i think you know what's what else i recognize about you know high end prints is uh there's a certain—I don't know how to say this without sounding weird—but there's kind of a certain. You're kind of selling a certain status. Yeah, I agree. You know what I mean, and 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 that's for me. That's a little bit uncomfortable because I grew up pretty poor, and like I, I, my parents never could afford anything like what I sell people for prints. You know what I mean? Same it's, man. And so it's. When there's always this um, imposter syndrome I go through whenever I get a new order, I'm like, "Did this really happen? Did I really just sell a three thousand dollar print? Okay, you know it's um, so you you have to be comfortable in the uncomfortable as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. Is uh the uncom being uncomfortable part I think is essential because at least in my experience, no matter what you do, every day when I'm creating new stuff no matter what it is, I'm always trying to put new ideas out there or new processes or new techniques. And I'm always, com- I'm always uncomfortable doing it. Like you just get used to being uncomfortable. So eventually you're like, "Yeah, who cares? It doesn't really right. do anything. <laughs> right. Um, but like at first, if you're creating new stuff or putting yourself out there and you feel uncomfortable, I think that stops a lot of people. So they're like, oh, well, I want to do this but it makes me feel a little uncomfortable compared to normal, but you just got to step off the cliff and do it anyway. If it's something you want to do and it's not like a risk to your life overall or somebody else's life. Um,
0: Right. Well, I mean, I know we're going to talk about it uh, later, but I think that fear of failure can really paralyze people, you know? Yeah. Whether it be doing YouTube videos or selling prints or teaching workshops or whatever. I think there's a lot of fear there and in, in, fear is usually based on legitimate concerns you have around things that probably can and will go wrong. So for me, it's, I like to embrace failure and I'm not afraid to share with people when I've had failure. You know, I think it that's, if anything, a good teacher can share, share with people how they've failed. I'll never forget this. I was, um, I was lucky enough to teach out of Yosemite last year and one of the instructors was, um, uh, John Sexton, who used to be Ansel Adams' assistant, nice. And he said something that'll always stick with me. And he he said because he he gave like a a speech you know, or a presentation, and he said, "I'm not a better photographer than any of you. I've just made more mistakes."
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: And I love that. I think that's yeah
1: awesome. You know, it's just such a good way of thinking about it. Um, here's here's an like I completely agree with that, and. I don't think I would have known that because a lot of people don't teach it, but the only way I came across it is in engineering school, when you're learning to design things, let's say you're in the first phase of like brainstorm design. Let's say you want to create something that doesn't exist yet and you have no idea how to do it. And a lot of people don't see this phase of engineering, but it's a very creative phase because essentially what you're doing is you're coming up with all these micro experiments and you're just running them through reality. And you're seeing how fast they can fail or how far they can progress you. So the goal is to take a bunch of these micro experiments or ideas and run them in the real world as quick as possible and fail as quickly as possible, because it's like a test for what actually might work in the long term. Because if you run an experiment and it fails terribly in the short term, but something else that's similar to it does really well, you probably want to discard the quick failure and go to the thing that worked well. But you won't know what those things are unless you fail a whole lot and very often. So I think if you separate it from yourself and your ego and just say, all right, well, I failed. Who cares? Let's get on to the next thing. I have more information about what we're up to now. And that that mindset switch has taken me further than anything else, I think, in life. And it's pretty simple to switch your mindset on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I had to teach myself how to do video this year. Cause I'd never done it before really. And cause I wanted to produce all these vlogs and I still have like gobs and gobs and gobs of raw unedited material still that I've recorded. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, I failed all kinds of ways, you know, like the microphone gain was too high and I completely ruined the video and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And of course I've made tons of mistakes in post-processing the video and in, in, uh, Adobe premiere and, But one one of the things that I've embraced, not only in like learning new things, but also in my own photography, Mm -hmm. is uh, to not let perfect be uh, get in the way of good. You know? Yeah. If you look at uh, really huge uh, YouTube channels, what's what I've come to the realization Mm -hmm. is your videos don't actually even really have to be that good. If (laughs) to be honest, I mean, as long as someone finds value in what you're sharing, even if it's like poor video quality or it's not produced super well, as long as you're providing someone with value and you have a little bit of personality, people are gonna watch it,
1: you know? Absolutely. I completely agree with you, man. And it's uh, all that stuff you're learning, like video and audio, I'm still horrible at all that stuff. And <laughs> right. it's like it went if like I don't listen to things I've created in the past too often. Like sometimes I do. Like I'm sure I'll listen to this podcast and even when I listen to it, I'll be like, you sound like a moron. But, like, <laughs> and, but I, when I listen to that, I, I could be like, all right, I'm not doing any more podcasts because I don't like how I sound. But I'm sure I'll do some other podcasts because it's, it's fun talking to you and it's fun talking to other people. And it's like the upsides are way bigger than the downside of you just feeling bad about yourself. I was going to say, you should try uh, listening to yourself every single week. <laughs> Doesn't it sort of drive you insane? Oh, uh, you know, it, it does for me.
0: I will tell you this, if if it's a really great way to just become very comfortable with your your foibles and the things that, you know, make you unique and maybe aren't your best qualities. But if you want to continue as a content creator, whether it's in writing or video production or podcasts, you just got to become
1: comfortable with the things that you're not, you know? I agree, man. Yeah, I I record, I make a lot of videos all the time and like just... I'm just, I like to make a lot of content and just listen to myself. Like sometimes at the end of the day, do you ever feel like I just can't listen to my voice anymore? (laughs) Like, do you ever feel like that? Yeah.
0: I mean, I, uh, the trick I use now is I edit all my podcasts in like 1.5 time. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) For videos. Yeah. So, you know, I don't
1: necessarily get to hear how stupid my voice is, uh, because
0: it's faster.
1: (laughs) That's a black belt trick. It you is. should push it push it up to 1.9 speed.
0: Yeah, no no doubt. But then it's like <laughs> it's hard to edit it, you know, because it's like but anyway, yeah. Um but I do you feel like uh some people do that with their photography as well? Like they maybe are trying to push it to a point where maybe they'll never get it, you know? Um like maybe they're trying to like maybe you worship, I don't know, David Thompson or or, or Mark Adamus or somebody and like mm-hmm. all of your photos you're trying to make them have this certain quality that maybe mm. isn't necessarily authentic to the way that you shoot and edit.
1: Um, do you feel like a lot of people do that? I'm not sure. I don't know what people are up to because I'm not on social <laughs> <Right>. media. Um, <laughs> <Where's> but <that? laughs> like, I, I guess when I first started out, like when I was learning, I was on social media and I was on Flickr back in the day. Um, I think you, were, you probably used to be on there too. But and uh, I think when you're starting, like. Trying to emulate or copy people can be great because it teaches you a lot about it. It gives you like something to aim for, right? Because when you are new, you don't have it; you can't create your own targets to aim for. But I think, from what I see, and this is just my opinion, is once people get into it for a while, it can be really easy to continue to aim for other people's targets, and it's hard to know when to shift from people you respect's target to your creating your own target to aim for. And I think if that's never done because it's going to make you uncomfortable, of course, depending on your own ideas and your own target. If you never do it, you're never going to actually progress into your own artwork or your own photography or ideas. Um, Mm -hmm. And the only reason I know that is because I run into it all the time. I'm like, man, start pushing some stuff out there that's a little bit beyond what you're doing now. You need to step it up and you need to to ramp the ideas up a bit harder. But it's just always always that back and forth struggle, right? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, for me, I hit a uh, plateau... Fairly quickly in my own photography, probably twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, where I felt like all I was doing was trying to copy other people's photographs and you know go to places that I saw on online or things like that. And uh, at some point in time, I realized uh, it was actually I, I can actually tell you the the trip I was on. It was a, it was a fall color trip, and I went to a, to a location that I'd been to before like two other times. And, you know, I was just tired of shooting the same old scenes that I had shot over and over again and seen online over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I decided to just flush all of my expectations for the whole trip down the toilet. And just I just started hiking up this crazy trail. And I didn't know where it was going to go. I didn't know if it was going to turn into any good photos. And it just opened up this huge window of opportunity for me to find photographs that I had never seen before. Um, that I, so I feel like you just kind of have to take the risk and just, you know, and be okay if you, if you fail. I think that's the other thing we, I think people kind of get stuck in this trap of, well, I, if I do that, then, then I'm, you know, I'm not going to come home with any good photographs and my time off is going to be ruined. And that might be true, but you're also not going to really grow as a photographer.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, I guess the the way that I try to do that because I run into, I ran into the same I do run into the same traps all the time, and the one nice thing about going backpacking and doing wilderness trips is that you're not you're always seeing new stuff and you can always make decisions to change your trip mid trip to go somewhere else or stay somewhere you weren't planning on and it kind of just opens your eyes to new landscapes all the time. Um, the other thing I find to be super helpful as far as like putting out photography work is I just have a schedule where I'm saying every two months, I'm putting out a new batch of like 20 or 30 images on my website. And I I don't care if they're perfect. Like I want them to be maybe 90 to 95% of where I think they should be, but I don't just let them sit forever. If I don't feel like I'm ready to edit them, I kind of just make it like an assembly line process where I'm like, all right, let's edit this. Let's get these out. They're good enough. They'll never be perfect, but let's just ship the work anyway. And I think by doing that, you'll get, at least I find myself getting better a lot faster because I don't have this like perfection mentality and I get to edit through a lot more photos like that and shoot a lot more like that.
0: Yeah, I'm the same way. It's 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 funny because um, I'll go on trips with my friend Kane and I'll come home and I'll edit all of the photos I took in a week and he'll like have one done in a week. And of course, his are way better than mine yeah. are. Um, but I've like, I'm done with this trip. I've moved on. I want to, and you know, maybe I come back and reedit it, a couple of the really good ones or something like that. But you know, I don't, I don't like to have a huge backlog of photos. It just doesn't feel right for me.
1: <laughs> yeah. I guess it all depends on uh, also what gives you energy to edit. Like I I have a different process. That's kind of mixed between you and Kane. Like I have a, I basically have a ready to process folder and there are images that I deem that I want to eventually edit to put in my portfolio. But generally after a trip, I let the images go into that folder mm-hmm. that I like and then I'll wait 6 months before I edit them. So it's like it's almost oh, wow. like a, a backlog where I'm editing the oldest photo in that folder and I'm slowly working towards the newest. So like in Lightroom you can just say which is the oldest photo, right? So I just work from the oldest one in that ready to process towards the newest one. And I'm just constantly, it's like in a, it's just like feeding photos into my Photoshop for me. And then I edit it from there. So it's like a mix of both, right? I have a schedule like you do, but I'm also not touching the photos for a while.
0: Yeah. I don't think I could ever do it that way. And here for me anyway, and I'd I'd be curious to hear how you feel when you sit down to edit those older photos. But uh, part of part of what I like about editing and and the whole process of photography in general is, you know, especially if it's a photograph I'm really stoked about, mm-hmm. you know, I I want to relive that moment. And I feel like the longer I wait to process it, I'm going to be more disconnected from that experience. And, and and it might end up being a better edit overall if I waited, yeah. but I feel like it's the essence of what I liked about that particular
1: moment in that particular time might have faded away. Yeah. That's, uh, that's super interesting, dude. It's because like, I have the, I, I wait for the exact same reason It's because I want to disconnect <laughs> from it. And that's, that's cool though. Cause we both see that and we both know how our own brains work. Yeah. So we like, we play, we're playing into like how our creative brains work and we have like a system that helps us out with it. So that's really cool to hear you say that. <laughs> oh,
0: it's interesting that we're doing it for the same reason, but the opposite uh effect.
1: <laughs> yeah. I I mean it just it's uh it takes some time to look into that though. Like that's kind of a, a cool point about just creating stuff in general. If you can study like if I'm doing something all the time and I'm never motivated to do it, I'm just gonna cut it out of my life because it's like you're never going to do it well if you're not motivated. Unless it's like something that you have to do, like pay taxes or something. I'm just gonna cut stuff that I don't have to do out. But by having stuff like you just said, you can kind of like play into your own strengths and then things that are weaknesses. Personally, I'm just not going to do them if I'm really not that interested in them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. So I want to go back to talking a little bit more about backpacking because that's obviously something we're both super into. And I loved where you were going with your thought process on that. I totally agree with you that uh, the coolest things about backpacking, at least for me in the wilderness is you're probably seeing things that no one else has ever seen before, or very few people have, especially Mm -hmm. if you're going really off the beaten path. And I think it opens up a whole new world of opportunity to kind of challenge yourself and explore things and just be super curious about kind of what you find and, and be open to just trying new things at might not work very well (laughs) at least that's been my experience but for sure you come away with some really cool stuff too you know
1: yeah and i completely agree and then the stuff that you come away with it seems to be worth more like the experience is for some reason worth more It just feels way different when you're creating off of a backpacking trip or a climbing trip that you designed and it's like the uh when you go back to edit that photo instead of having the memory, like just two different examples. Like I always used to go to the photography hotspots. I think everybody does when they start out. But sure. when you do that, your experience when you go back to edit the photo after the trip might be like, this is a cool photo, but you don't have ties to the planning. The the work went into it, everything to set it up and all the failure that went in to make it happen. That doesn't exist before you captured the photo. So it's like a, a completely different shift in mindset and experience.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. I think... I think that's also why I don't like to do any composite work anymore as well mm. is because uh, what I found is that those photographs that, you know, while maybe they weren't as poppy or flashy or, you know, aren't going to be as popular on social media as some, some some someone's work that, you know, has been perfected through compositing, but I just found, I find that stuff just, I can't connect to it. Yeah. Uh, because it wasn't actually something I saw or experienced, so I'd much rather share a photograph that maybe isn't perfect, but it does represent something that I actually witnessed.
1: <laughs> I agree with you, man. I'm also too lazy to do composites. <laughs>
0: it does take a lot of work. There is no a doubt lot about of work.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Do you? Uh, so I was on your website and. I saw that you used to be doing a lot of climbing. Are you still doing that? Or like, what are you up to now as far, like what interests you now as far as outdoor stuff?
0: Yeah. I mean, so I originally got into photography as a means of documenting all of my mountain climbing trips. Oh, cool. And, uh, as the more and more I did it, the more and more I got into the photography side of things. And, and, uh, so, you know, a lot of my favorite photographs are taken on, on those journeys or those trips. But, uh, now that I've, uh, my goal was to climb the highest 100 mountains in Colorado, and I finished that in 2017. Congrats,
1: man. That's that's a serious feat.
0: Yeah, thanks. And so now I don't have that mountain climbing goal anymore, but I still have goals to climb up different mountains to get different vantage mm-hmm. points uh, of different scenes. So I'm, uh, in some ways, I have a lot more freedom to kind of you know be okay with okay i'm just gonna hike up to that ridge over there i don't have to necessarily climb that mountain so so i have a lot more flexibility in terms of what i'm looking to photograph now which has opened up a lot of interesting possibilities uh i'm not getting out there nearly as much as i used to because i don't have that goal anymore but uh it's definitely it definitely still drives drives me especially in the summertime for sure
1: yeah it's so addicting yeah. Um, have you ever watched the movie Dirtbag, The Legend of Fred Becky?
0: I have not, although I've heard of it.
1: Oh, dude, you got to watch that. So if if anybody wants to watch an awesome motivational movie about somebody that wants to do something and then they just give up everything else in life just to do it, it's a good story about this guy that grew up in the Pacific. Oh, well, he moved here from Germany in World War II. And he basically pioneered all the climbing routes up and down like the West coast of the United States up into BC and Alaska. And it's just an awesome movie. It's also hilarious. Um, but big recommendation. I think you can get it like, I don't know, maybe Amazon prime or something has it. Cool. Yeah. It's no, called dirt bag, the legend of Fred Becky. Uh, that guy's one of my heroes.
0: Awesome. Yeah. What, what, what makes him your, one of your heroes?
1: Um, number one that he designed a thing that he wanted to do that nobody was up to. And he found a way to do it no matter what. And he was willing to just give up everything else that he wasn't that interested in. And I just like people that have that mentality because it's it's fun to watch them work. Because you know that they're doing something without like this back-end interest for money or fame in mind. They're just doing it because they want to do it. And that's that. Uh, So that's the number one reason I like it. Um, Another reason is just because he pioneered a lot of areas like there's no roads out in the Pacific Northwest then like you couldn't just drive out to these areas. And he was taking like two week approaches with food into these areas and just pioneering first descents up them. Awesome. Pretty interesting dude. And then like just all the, uh, Oh man, have you ever talked to Ed Cooper before?
0: No. Although I have (laughs) exchanged a few emails with him. Yeah.
1: Ed Cooper climbed with Fred Becky. He's got lots of photos from it. Um, Yeah actually I think uh, photos are in that movie
0: i think iron taz recommended i reach out to him um, that guy's
1: a legend yeah um, that's, that's why that's why i like him i i just like uh i just like that mentality it's not a good mentality for everything but for some stuff it is
0: right well and it's also not compatible with a lot of people's lifestyles
1: <laughs> yeah i guess that's why i like it is like he created the lifestyle that made it compatible right and then and then like now, people do that lifestyle like eighty years later as a full-time profession. It's like, well, without Fred Becky, nobody would have known that path existed.
0: right. Yeah, he just created it out of nothing. Yeah, that's cool. Just
1: willed it out. He saw something in his mind, and he was like, "Let's create this in reality. It's just a neat, a neat thing
0: that's so cool. Yeah. It's almost like you kind of did that a little bit. I mean, I know that there's other people that are doing similar, you know, methods of making photography a reality, but, you know, you definitely blazed the path in terms of telling the world you don't need social media to be successful.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I guess we'll see if that holds true or not, if I'm still (laughs) doing this in 20 years, right? But uh, when I was starting and still now, maybe if anybody knows people like this, they can shoot me an email. Um, but my, my email is Dave at Dave photography.com, but I can't find anybody that's doing photography full-time. That's actually doing like wilderness photography where they're designing routes out into like legit wilderness where they're going to be out there for two weeks and they're just living out there to get photos. There might be, but I just have no idea who these people are. And I always try to find them because I like to learn from other people that are on the same path. And I can learn a lot from like Photographers like David Thompson's an awesome photographer. Like looking at his work, I can get so much from just looking at what he's up to. But I can't find anybody that's at that level of shooting and that's also doing like wilderness stuff. And I, I have no idea. Maybe you know some people like that.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say a, a couple of people come to mind, but I don't know if they're doing it to, to the extent that you're describing. Um, and I wonder I think, why. Well. <laughs> I think it's really hard to monetize that lifestyle. (laughs) That's true. Um, Without, you know, totally becoming a social media influencer, which I think if I see, I see, I do see people doing that with like overlanding, you know, like people that, Mm -hmm. you know, do that with their vehicles and things like that. I think they make a living at it by being influencers for different brands and, you know, having a YouTube channel and things like that. I'm trying to think uh, Scott, is his name? Uh, Scott, Scott Kranz?
1: Oh, yeah. I think I've, I don't, his name sounds familiar to me. I'm not sure why. I don't know if he's doing kind of
0: exactly what you're describing, but yes. I mean, he's doing a lot of, you know, climbing and wilderness stuff. And I would, I would describe him as more of maybe an influencer for sure. But, you know, he's got 357,000 followers on Instagram. So I think Fair that's enough. how he's leveraging it is, you know, Selling uh, promotion, promoting different products and doing paid sponsored posts and stuff like that. I think that's how people are able to do that these days.
1: Yeah. Hey, if that's how they want to do it, cool.
0: I think the challenge with that, though, is remaining authentic to your why you're out there to begin with, you know? And I think that's why I shy away from a lot of that stuff because it's, you know, the last thing I want to think about when I'm in the wilderness backpacking is promoting somebody's product
1: oh, that sounds disgusting to me. It make my skin crawl. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: now, whether or not I would do it if someone said, you don't ever have to work a day in your life again, I, I don't know,
1: you know? Yeah, I know. It's, it's like, it's real easy for us to sit here and say that and nobody's offering that that strategy to us. Um, right. <laughs> I, I mean, I get I get emails all the time that are like, hey, do you want to try out this outdoor gear? And it's like, I just politely decline, but it's like, I don't, like some people don't mind doing that. I just, See if you feel like this. like when you spend a lot of time outdoors, like there's no way that I would be able to, in good conscious conscience, is that is that a word?: Yeah, it in is. good conscience. Um, be able to go out and sell something on land that I, like I enjoy being on so much and, and that gives so much to me. It's, it just seems like consumerism and gear like gears great to have. I love gear, don't get me wrong. but selling it out in the wilderness, there's something that seems a little bit weird or off about it to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see that perspective and I'm <clears throat> probably more in your camp than not. But I will say, you know, if it's a product that I really like and it helps me, it helps enhance my experience. Like, for example, last year I, I got uh, Shimoda, uh, their new backpack, and I did like a little YouTube video on it while I was doing my fall colors trip. Yep. Um, I was totally fine with that because it <clears throat> it was a product that I actually really liked. But if it was something that I thought was total trash, mm-hmm. I
1: wouldn't. I would be like, "Hey guys, don't buy this; it's total trash." <laughs> I guess that's maybe that's what I'm more against. Is that it? It seems like a lot of people are just have just become maybe not a lot of people. I don't know a lot of people, but it seems like people have become ads in person form. I think South Park did an episode on this like way back in the day. Um. <laughs> about people becoming ads. Like I'm all for helping out companies that are creating good gear, but it, it like, maybe I'm, my ideas aren't clarified on this yet because there's like something that feels off to me, but what you just said, like you're helping a company and you're helping potentially photographers at the same time. So it's like, I don't know where to draw that line, I guess.
0: Well, in, in my case, it was even more complicated too, because um, I was doing a conservation award through the podcast um, so I was raising money through Patreon on my podcast to award a conservation award to a photographer. And I asked Shimoda if they would sponsor the conservation award. And they were like, yeah, we'll do that. Um, we'll give them like a free backpack and stuff like that. And Hey, do you also want one? And I was like, well, sure. You know, why not?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I I'm all for it too. So,
0: but if it was just like-, like random gear companies saying, Hey, we want you to do a video on our product and we want it to done in this national park or something. I, yeah, I would feel very uncomfortable with that for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, what kind of backpack are you rocking these days? Are you still <laughs> using that Shimoto pack?
0: Yeah, I actually liked it so much that I got a second one. I got the bigger one as well. So it's the uh, Action X50 and I also got the Action X70. They're, nice. they're, they're pretty sweet, man. They're really comfortable. The How much I, is that bad boy weigh? Um it's so it's not super light. I want to say it's like three and a half, four pounds with the ICU in it. Um, but it's really comfortable and it's just like well thought out in terms of how you carry your photography equipment. I find the the Action X fifty is great for for like a three or four day backpacking trip by myself.
1: Works great. Oh nice. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know if it was, I I didn't know if it was a backpacking bag. So it's a camera bag, but it has enough volume to Used for backpacking, just enough. <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, just enough. What
1: um, like when you go out pat pack- backpacking, what kind of what what kind of gear do you take as far as camera gear?
0: Yeah, it depends on where I'm going, but uh, typically I'm bringing a fourteen to twenty four, a twenty four to one hundred five, and a one hundred to four hundred. And I might even bring a one point four teleconverter with me, and I usually just have the one camera body unless I'm doing. multiple video or time lapse so yeah sony a7r4 and i also have the a7r2 typically just one tripod what about you nice
1: um i used to use the d810 but i just switched to the z7 because the video is so cool yeah Uh, i like the D, d both like the z7 and the 810 as far as like the actual image quality you can see they're pretty close right um but i switched to the z7 because i used to be d eight ten fourteen 14 to 24 and then 28 to 300 mm-hmm. and the twenty to 300 kind of a crappy lens from nikon it does the trick because it's so versatile sure um, but with the z7 i have the uh 14 to 30 i oh, think it's so nice yeah it's so sharp man it's sharper than the 14 to 24 and yeah. uh then i went with the 24 to 200 because the z7's like i think eight thousand some pixels wide on the on the horizontal Mm -hmm. so i I can now shoot 200 millimeters and then if i want it to be 300 i'll just crop it down and it's still the same size as the d810 resolution totally down yeah so i was like all right you don't need to carry that extra glass anymore just crop your image down
0: right Um, yeah i love
1: doing that too (laughs) it's it's hard to visualize that process at first and i'm still like i still haven't perfected it because it's like normally you like to see close to the composition on the back of your screen and instead you have to be like all right well What's the composition inside the composition that I actually want, and that takes some time to get used to. But shaved four pounds, so can't complain.
0: Yeah, I also have a super lightweight setup if I'm doing like really big days of hiking and elevation gain. I've got a um, 21 <clears throat> Prime and I've got a 55 Prime. So the you know that's like ultra lightweight setup for you know like a really big trip. Um, but I also found that if you just work out a lot you can kind of <laughs> overcome Helps. some of that. <laughs> yeah. What do you, what is, what's your workout uh, schedule? Like? <laughs> um, I pretty much work out every day in the winter right now. I ride my Peloton. So I do, it's called power zone training. Nice. So, you know, you like one day you maybe ride for like 30 minutes and i progressively more difficult you know, but you kind of, it's more of endurance. You keep the Mm -hmm. same pace for a long time. So like
1: low heart rate zones.
0: Yeah. And then, and then I'll, and then I'll switch that up with like a, like a, like a hit ride or something like that, where it's, you know, high intensity uh, zones at different frequencies. Um, And then when it's nice outside, uh, I have this really cool hiking path. That's really close to me. It's called the sky steps. (laughs) Nice. And it's basically, I want to say it's, 570 stairs basically up this trail straight up to the college from from downtown and uh, basically what i try to do is i time myself and i go up and down it twice and i try to beat my time every time i do it so i had gotten it down to like under 12 minutes for up and down twice last summer so that was pretty
1: cool nice dude yeah that stuff helps so much do you ever get into trail running
0: no i
1: haven't yet no (laughs) <laughs> I got to convert you over. It's Yeah, it's so fun, man. Totally. It, I I li- I guess I guess it doesn't get I didn't find it to be that fun until you start running like ultra distances, meaning like 30 35 miles plus. And uh what's interesting about ultra running, for anybody listening, ultra just means you're running like 33. It's like a 50k plus in the mountains. Um but the training for it's not intense. It's just over a long period of time and you're always running really slow so like you're running in very low heart rate zones so if you run there's basically different heart rate zones from zero to i think five if you run in in the bottom two heart rate zones you burn fat energy and you have everybody has a lot of fat on their body even skinny people but if you go in like heart rate zones three to five you burn essentially sugar energy and that's why like you know what bonking is when you're like pushing it real hard yeah so that's why you bonk cuz you run out of sugar energy. So when you uh learn to train for ultras, you t- you train your body to burn fat energy and it essentially can make you run all day long. So yeah. you just you slowly level this up over months and you'd be surprised how far you can run when you do this and it it's really good for like training for backpacking too. Um yeah, what would, what would you say the
0: benefits are to your photography for for pushing your limits physically?
1: Well, I mean, a good example would be if anybody's ever done a hard day hike to go out and take photos and you get up to the top of this climb and you're so tired and hungry that you're like, I don't even want to take photos. I'm done.
0: Yeah. That's what happens to me a lot, actually. Yeah,
1: If you train for endurance, like you can put in 15, 20 miles on a trail on a day with lots of elevation gain, get there for sunset and you're like, yeah, just a normal day. And that's the reason I train for endurance is that kind of thing. And just make... It just makes you, it's in way more enjoyable. You have more fun because you're not miserable and tired the whole time. So right. it's a big shift in like the kind of trip. I used to get tired all the time, man. I would uh like before I started endurance training, I would just be like, man, I don't want to hike some days. But the buildup of just teaching your body to slowly scale up what it's used to year after year, it's almost like a long-term thing that you can build into yourself where you're not, uh, you don't get tired anymore.
0: Yeah, and I don't know about you, but uh, I find that if you're exhausted physically, um, yeah. it's really hard to be creative.
1: Super hard because I, I agree, your brain's only concerned with getting food and energy at that point.
0: Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, two, I like guess. Yeah, three years ago, I did this pretty intense backpacking trip, and I wasn't necessarily in the best shape because I had just moved back to to Colorado. Mm-hmm. And, um, I hadn't burned off all of my fat, my fat beer yet, my beer fat. <laughs> I know what that, I got some of that too, man. And I definitely did not make the best photographs on that trip. And I've hit a lot of walls, physical walls. And so last year I did a lot more intentional training to, to do that same exact trip And I found myself a lot more creative, a lot more able to look for interesting photographs. And I came away with a lot better images.
1: That's cool. Yeah, I never really thought of that. That's that's a great point about that because uh, at least when I'm tired, I don't like, you seriously don't care about anything except resting when you're really tired. Like your brain turns like to, to full animal instinct survival mode. So yeah, it helps a lot with that. And it's also... It's also really nice to just do active stuff every day. If if you're not out on the trail, just to have like goals of things you do and just like they're little small pieces of accountability and you do them no matter what. And I think that habit can also kind of display across into the rest of your creative life. Like you want to get a certain thing done as far as your photos, make some small bite sized chunks of things you can do every day and just knock them out no matter what. The hard part is like determining how big those chunks should be Mm -hmm. to not get super burnt out and just like completely fall off a cliff.
0: Yeah, what I found is really important for me is to have like a very big goal, Mm -hmm. you know, that I'm pushing towards, and then like you said, break break that big goal up into smaller chunks. For example, like my goal is to be able to do that type of backpacking and photography every summer. And I know that in, unless I'm in really good physical condition, that's not going to be possible. And that keeps
1: me motivated enough to work out every day. Yeah, I like that, man. How, well, um, especially where you live out. Like, what's the elevation where you live? Uh, 67.12. I would love to live up that high. That's a, That's a nice asset to have.
0: Yeah, it's pretty good.
1: <laughs> um, every time I come down to like do backpacking in Wyoming or Colorado, like when I first used to do it, I would come down from Pacific Northwest. Like we have huge mountains here, but we're at sea level and the mountains go up to like twelve or fifteen thousand feet. So there's like a lot of elevation change, but right. we have we have weak lungs compared to you guys, or our systems aren't using used to processing low oxygen. Um so when I used to come down there, I would just drive down. And then I would start the trip. And the first few days of the trip, I'd be like, I can't move. (laughs) Um, So then I started just coming down and hanging out for a week first. So maybe next time I come down, I can swing by and hang out with you for a little bit.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah, it's all about acclimating is super important if you're going to do anything at elevation, for sure. I know um, I spent two years living in Portland, which is at sea level. And every summer I would come back to do some mountain climbing. And I had the same problem. Like the first two days, I just basically had to take it super easy and not push myself hard. Otherwise I would just be completely exhausted. Yeah. Do you,
1: um, like, so you have goals and systems for outdoor stuff. Do you do that for photography stuff too, or like the other content you create, like your podcast, or does that stuff just kind of generate itself?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I definitely, otherwise, if I don't have goals set, I just don't do it. So I, I always have a goal, of releasing one podcast a week which then kind of drives my you know habits of reaching out to people or scheduling interviews and things like that so i do definitely have a more structured uh, set of goals for the podcast in terms of my photography though my photography i have goals basically i want to get out and take pictures at least once a month and so but i don't have any goals in terms of like oh I need to take this picture at this location so that I can sell a print of it or anything like that My goal is more around just having enjoyable experiences in nature and staying creative and uh, mm-hmm. staying curious and I I find that the rest of everything else will kind of follow
1: yeah I like that that's kind of the same uh, same line of thinking I use I like that a lot that's cool
0: yeah but it means you're you know you don't necessarily produce work that's like off the charts necessarily but you're producing work that you like
1: yeah and i think you can do it for the long term if you like it versus like off the charts is like i mean some people can produce off the chart work every year their whole life or every week or whatever but it's it's kind of like a hard thing to keep up in the long term and if you produce off the charts once then everything after that seems like a failure it seems like to me at least
0: totally well and i don't know about you but you know well, you don't follow a lot of people on social media, but I'm pretty well connected to some people. And it's a fascinating. Sometimes I'll see these people. They're like, today I'm in Yosemite. And then the next day they're like, yeah, now I'm, now I'm over in Zion. And then it's like the next day they're in Bryce. And the next day they're in the Grand Canyon. It's like, how do you have time to be traveling so much? Like, how the hell are you pulling this off? And how are you not sick of it? <laughs> yeah. You know, like I... I could not do that style of photography.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm the same way though, dude. It's like, I like to really spend a lot of time in one place. Yes. And that's what's cool about backpacking is like, you can go out on a week-long backpacking trip or two weeks or whatever you like. And you might like, I always try to have like an initial plan of some things that I want, like some places I might want to go. Some of them off trail, some of them on trail. But if I get to a spot and I'm just really feeling the spot, I'll stay there for a few days and just do like have a base camp tent up and then just do hikes out of that tent. And I find that to be an awesome way to find photos because you have some more energy during the day because you're not lugging your whole pack around and you just are concentrating on finding photos and hiking around your tent area, which could still be like a 10 mile day hike, right? But you don't have to lug everything else around with you. Totally. And you get to study the light in that area over a few days and kind of see how it works in the landscape. Yeah. That's why I
0: like to go back to certain areas over and over again, because they become much more familiar. I feel more intimately connected to that place. And I'm also a lot more knowledgeable about, you know, what's going to work and what's not going to work. So I feel more comfortable about the types of images I'm going to be able to get.
1: Yeah, completely,
0: man. It's, um, it's, do you know who Adam Gibbs is? Has he been on here? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, He's going to be one of our judges for our, our new competition that we created.
1: Yeah. He's a good example of what, I, well, this is just my guess. Like I, I don't, I haven't talked to him, but I think he's a cool guy, but um, he seems like a good example of what happens when you really practice shooting the kind of things you like to shoot over a long career and right. just like, and continue to go back to spots and study them until you get to be an expert. Because like when I watch his YouTube videos or I see his photos, he makes like, Forest photography look really easy, right. and it's like the hardest thing possible. And you're like, I'm, I'm like, dude, how are you? How are you doing this stuff?
0: Totally, yeah. I mean, it's the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it, and the more comfortable you're going to be. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the importance of failure. I'm sure he's spent a lot of time failing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and everything he does now seems simple, but it only looks simple because he knows. Like he knows his process for it, right? So he's definitely failed a lot, I bet. <laughs>
0: totally. I was curious not to totally change the subject, but... Oh, um, go for it. In lines of uh, backpacking, mm-hmm. uh, what, where do you stand in terms of like sharing GPS coordinates and stuff like that?
1: Oh man, here goes a tangent. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's so, what's unfortunate about this situation is that you don't, until you've spent a lot of time in the wilderness you don't have the attachment to the places and you don't understand how easily a place can be ruined by a lot of foot traffic or people going there. Mm -hmm. And so the, the comeback to this is well, if you don't share locations, then new, new beginners can't go out, but there's already plenty of good beginner locations you can go to anywhere. So I think it's good to get people introduced to backpacking. But I really wish that people wouldn't share photo locations. And this is just my own stance. I mean, there's many other stances on it, but I more care about the environment than anything else, meaning the environment and the ecosystem of the things that live there. And especially in the desert environments, uh, especially down where you live, even in the mountains, if something gets screwed up and a lot of people go there, it just doesn't regenerate. In the Pacific Northwest, like the rainforest, that stuff generates back a lot quicker, but it can still get damaged. And if a lot of people go to one place, number one, it just makes like herd mentality where everybody's like, we have to go to this spot. This is the spot to go, but there's a million other places that are just as good. And it takes people's creativity. It kind of robs them of it because they have an expectation before they go. So I'm against sharing locations on so many, for so many different reasons, but those are just two of them. Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't used to be back in you know when i was doing my uh, really hardcore into my mountain climbs i had a i would do a basically a blog i call it a trip report but Mm -hmm. it was basically like photos from my my climbing trip and i would even have like all my you know my gps tracks and you know it was basically i wanted it so that other people that were going to do those mountain climbs could have Mm -hmm. something they could reference yeah Um, and so i'll never forget it i did a trip when i first moved Back here to Colorado, to a location that is now super, 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 super popular. It's called Island Lake. Like everyone knows about it now. It's the cat is out of the bag. It's Ice Lake Basin here. Yeah. And um, but back then even it was still not totally known. This was like 2016, Mm -hmm. and uh, I remember I did a. I was there to climb a mountain. And uh, so I posted my chirp report, and we had run into a. F- a friend of mine who was with us, we ran into one of their friends who lives in the small town of Ofer, which is like a tiny little mountain town near there. And they were commenting about how much more foot traffic that place was getting over the years and how bad it was getting. And then uh, they saw my trip report and the guy was like kind of pissed off that I even posted it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, dude, no one's going to Like my one little trip report is not gonna cause all these people to go up into the mountains. And now that I've seen the impact of Instagram on these different places and it's totally changed my thinking on all of that. It's like I'm much more careful about what I share and how I share it and you know, I have a whole kind of thought process and how I evaluate what I what gets shared in terms of the location. And this was all born out of uh I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but, uh, me and 10 other photographers created, uh, what's called nature first photography. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was basically, we were trying to solve this problem. We saw these places just getting overrun with foot traffic from people that, you know, they didn't really comes down to these people just don't know any better. They see the location on their phone on Instagram and yeah. they are like, I want to go there. And these aren't typically people that have grown up, uh, with, you know, learning about the uh, ecosystems like you're saying. So we wanted to give people some some guidelines to follow. And so like one of them is
1: use discretion of sharing locations. It's one of the uh, seven principles. Nice. That's cool that you started that, man. Um, I think it's very hard to understand. Like the internet's still pretty new. Totally. And Instagram's really new in the scheme of things. People, I don't think it's very easy to understand scale. If people don't like even the human mind doesn't understand exponential scaling very well. And once something gets out as far as like a shared post, it can go from like one person visiting or seeing it to millions almost instantly. And then you can't ever get rid of it. And that's not always a good thing. It can be good in some circumstances because people enjoy seeing it. But I try to just stick to places that now not everybody's in this position to do this, but I stick to places that can't be reached unless you want to hike three or four days same (laughs) and then you're also you're also doing climbing too so a lot of places are protected by the climbing skills to get up there and that helps a lot but climbing routes can still get really busy um so that some of that stuff helps but places that don't have protection in terms of length of time or physical output or skills such as climbing i don't know if there's any hope for those places unfortunately
0: yeah, and I think the biggest challenge is that for people that are complaining about people that don't share locations, they haven't necessarily they don't have the hindsight to see what happens because they're probably they've they're steeped in the current status of things where they go to mm-hmm. places and they see it full of people and they just assume that's how it's always been. Very true. Um, and then unless you've actually seen the impacts of, of what happens when places get shared over and over again like ice lake basin is a perfect example of that there was a huge account i can't remember the dude's name i could pull it up but he uh, he was actually um discussed on a public lands hates you instagram account which you probably don't follow because you're not on social media but anyway (laughs) i don't know what it is yeah i did a whole podcast on it so you can check it out but basically i remember seeing this guy he had posted a. he had like 1 million followers on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And he posted a video from Ice Lake Basin and geotagged it. This was like 2017, 2018. And you can just see just some of that one video that got went viral and like millions and millions of people see it. Now, if you go to Ice Lake Basin, uh, the trailhead is packed Monday through Sunday. Hundreds and hundreds of people are up there every day of the week. doesn't matter when. And I remember I went there... 2013, it was me and like five people in the whole basin for a weekend, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. What's a big bummer about this is that like, it doesn't really affect me much because I don't go to places that people go and I keep them under wraps. Sure. What's a bummer for me is that when I started out and I started getting excited by going out in the wilderness, even if it was day hiking, there were lots of really good places to go and get an experience where you're by yourself. And I think if that goes away for people that are starting out, then they'll never know that there's something else or there's another way to experience that. So they'll never be directed towards it through their own, like wanting to be in like a wilderness experience. Mm. There's just no place to escape in a lot of ways. And it's kind of horrible because as time progresses, if you're just starting out and you want to do a day hike or even like a few night backpack trip, you're going to be surrounded by people all the time. And like, yeah. that's, that's, that stinks for everybody that's starting out now.
0: Right. Cause they don't have the opportunity to have that experience, which then informs their desire to protect locations.
1: Yeah. Protect locations. And maybe if they have the desire to push their trips longer or get into wilderness sure. locations where they're actually doing long trips. Like if I didn't have, no, if there was nobody, or if there was a lot of people around, I should say, when I was going on my first trips, it might've turned me off to backpacking completely. And I might not have ventured out to the trips where I could actually get alone or even known that that existed as a thing, you know? Totally. Yeah. It's, it's almost blinding people to the pathway that used to exist. I'm not saying that exists everywhere, but it's happening more and more.
0: Oh, yeah. It's it's gotten pretty pretty insane. From my perspective, it's getting harder and harder to get away from people, especially with the
1: pandemic, you know? <laughs> yeah, everybody's outside.
0: Right. Which is good, but it's also it's bad.
1: Yeah. I'm all, I'm all for people going outside and experiencing this stuff, but there's just so many places already they can go experience. And there's also like, if anybody out there wants to get into hiking and stuff, you can also just go buy some topographic maps. Like Nat Geo makes really nice maps of a lots of outdoor areas. And you can look at your map and say, Hey, I'm not going to go on Instagram and plan a hike, or I'm not going to go on the internet and plan a hike. I'm just going to look at a trail on a map and just go follow the trail and see what happens. And Normally, it's a way more enjoyable experience. Sometimes you might hit a trail that's busy, but sometimes you might find place that nobody goes to.
0: Yeah, and and as a photographer, you're probably going to be presented with um, scenes and experiences that perhaps other people never have had before, and you're, it's going to contribute to
1: you having more unique images. For sure. And um, that's, that's a great point. I, I guess another thing that kind of piles on top of that is that if I go out to a place... I don't want to see images before I go, even if they exist. It's nice to not have like somebody else's creativity inside my brain, because I feel like even if I try to maybe place it on the back burner and say, I'm not going to pay attention to it. Once I see an image from that place, I feel like it kind of corrupts my ability to go out there and have an experience with have the same experience I would have if I didn't see that image first. Does that make sense? That that was kind of convoluted.
0: It totally makes sense. I mean, that's, basically my approach as well. If I go, if I'm going to a place I've never been to before, I purposely try to avoid looking at other people's photographs from those places just because I don't want, um, to chase what I've seen. You know, I want to be open-minded to finding something else. Now the counter argument to that is like, well, if you've seen it, just don't, just don't do it. Don't recreate it. But I don't know for me, that's, I like what you said because it, You don't have that kind of subconsciously in your head.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm just like with myself super competitive and I can't snap out of that competitiveness if I see like another photo. I'm not trying to make a better photo than that person, but that thing will just sit in the back of my mind and if they had a cool photo, I'll be like, well, I definitely want to shoot that location. It's not like I'd go and take their composition, but if I see one that from around there, I'll be like, oh, that looks like a sweet spot. I should go there. Although there are same there are other spots all over the place that are just as good. But for some reason, seeing images just for my mind, it doesn't work well.
0: Yeah. I'm the same way. Actually, <laughs> I I'm very aware of it. And I, like I said, I purposely avoid looking at other people's stuff. If it's somewhere I've never been before, cause I don't, I don't want that
1: imprinted in my brain. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I still like going to some photographers websites though. Like David Thompson has an awesome website to look through. Um, I guess I'm old school. I don't have Instagram, so I go on people's actual websites. No, it's like it's a much better way of consuming photography anyway. It's like an it's like my parents not wanting to use the internet and looking at the and looking at a newspaper instead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> totally. Well, cool man. So, before we check out, I I was hoping you could uh, tell listeners about some free materials that they would be have some access to over on your website.
1: Oh yeah. If anybody wants to uh, check out my website, I can give you that. And I also designed a course that is just basically step-by-step camera technique that I think solves a lot of big problems that I have and that other people have when shooting. So I think a lot of people go into camera technique and I know I used to do this. They just will show up to a composition and they'll kind of just be scatterbrained with how they're selecting settings and stuff like that. And it kind of gets in the way of creating good compositions because instead of Concentrating on composition and light, you're concentrating on camera technique. So I just made a process, which is basically a decision tree that walks you through camera technique. And the nice part is once you see it and you understand it, it's not hard. It's just logical. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into your subconscious. And then once you're shooting all the time, you just automatically go through this process and you can really concentrate on composition and light and just working on better images. So if you guys want to get a hold of that, you can check out the link that Matt will lead you. It is just davemorrowphotography.com forward slash podcast. And it's on there. There you You go. You guys can grab it. Or if you're not, you can just go on my website and check out other stuff. Or you can go on my YouTube channel. Just Google Dave Morrow and all that stuff will come up.
0: Sweet, man. Uh, Well, lastly, who would you recommend for the podcast?
1: Uh, My buddy, Iron Taz. You guys can check out irontaz.com. He's a backpacker, but he also does photography. He's got some and he,
0: sweet stuff from the Cascades.
1: Yeah, he's got some really good photos, and I've learned a lot from him about backpacking. His website's great for learning about wilderness backpacking, and that's where I've learned all, not everything, but I've learned a large portion of the style of backpacking I do now from him, but he's got some really cool locations he gets into and shoots from, And um, he, so he's uh, one. And he, dabbles, he
0: also dabbles in
1: painting, I think. Yeah, he paints some really cool stuff. Yeah. And I think you can find that on his website too. So if you can get him, that would be cool. Maybe I can poke him and see what will happen. I Um, like it. And then Chip Phillips would be cool to have on. I think Chip Phillips pioneered landscape photography out in the Northwest, at least like the modern style of landscape photography.
0: Nice. Yeah, I've been going back and forth with Chip. So I think eventually we'll find a way to make it happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's the only people I got. I'm sure there's lots more that I don't know about
0: cool awesome man well this was a lot of fun dude i really appreciate you spending the time here and i always appreciate it when people bounce things back at me i i thought that that makes it so much more fun
1: <laughs> yeah it was it was really enjoyable i didn't really feel like it was a podcast we were just hanging out talking which is always really fun and i appreciate you having me on and if you ever want back in the future i'd be happy to come on and chat again It's a really fun time Matt.
0: cool man All right. Well, thanks again to Dave for joining me on the show. I highly encourage you to check out his website at DaveMorrowPhotography.com podcast to get some free information. And at the very least, you can learn how he has his email funnels set up, which I think might help you as well. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and experience with us, Dave. I really appreciate it. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us and listening. See you next week.